Hello and welcome to the Anishinaabe History Podcast. I'm Chris Waite. Miigwech and Sathshri Akal to Gurvinder for your sponsorship. It is very much appreciated. Today we're talking about a boundary that at one time had been referred to as the Medicine Line and some of the treaties that created the Medicine Line, which today is known as the Canada-U.S. International Border. This border wasn't always there. Like all borders, it has changed over time. So how was this border developed? The Canadian border with the United States is at the 49th degree latitude. It is often promoted as the longest undefended border in the world. Although the Canada-U.S. border is generally on the 49th parallel, it does use local geologic formations as part of the boundary. The Pigeon River border crossing is an example. Prior to treaties being signed, Ojibwe people in some areas of the vast region inhabited by the Anishinaabek were charging migrants a toll to go through Ojibwe territory. And yet, 1776 is today remembered as the birth of the United States of America, and indigenous people need to show identification to travel across boundaries established upon their own traditional territory. How did this happen? In a word, treaties. By making treaties with native peoples, European colonies of the French and British were allowed to develop strength. Then, more treaties were signed. Later treaties were different from earlier treaties in that there was no longer a nation-to-nation dialogue, but rather commands to the indigenous by career politicians. The lands ceded through treaties increased over time, under the guise of mutual benefit. However, the ultimate goal of the colonizing nations of Britain, France, America, and Canada was not nation-to-nation cooperation, but rather imperial domination. In fact, I argue that the border itself is a remnant of the balkanization of the Anishinaabe people. The Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines balkanization as, quote, to break up a region, a group, etc., into smaller and often hostile units. End quote. As an example, part of the current Canada-U.S. border goes through Ojibwe territory. Let me tell you about it. The current bridge spanning the Pigeon River was completed in 1964. The previous border route had been several kilometers west of the current location. The old crossing was called the Outlaw Bridge. In the 1930s, there were plans for a more direct route like the Pigeon River Crossing, but acquisition of the land required a Supreme Court case. To make the road, the Minnesota government would have to acquire the land from the federal government. The land itself, however, belonged to the Chippewa and was being held by the federal government on behalf of the local Chippewa signatories. This area is known as the Grand Portage Indian Reservation. In the days of the fur trade, Grand Portage was an important landmark for voyageurs. The voyageurs had learned from the Chippewa that this was the best way to go from the western shores of Lake Superior deeper inland to Lac La Croix. Then it's just a hop, skip, and a jump to Rainy Lake and Fort Francis. Then you could make your way to the Red River Settlement and the Riverine Crossroads there. So in the late 1700s, the Northwest Company established an outpost at the mouth of the Pigeon River. 
but by 1802 the Northwest Company abandoned that position and went north to Fort William. This was because the Grand Portage area was now under American control. But this region was still unsurrendered Chippewa territory. In fact, the Grand Portage Indian Reservation wasn't established until the Treaty of 1854. And yet, the official Canada-U.S. border was first established in 1818, decades before treaties were signed with the people upon whose land that border was to be established. Furthermore, the people upon whose land that border was established were neither parties nor signatories to the establishment of said border. In other words, the border wasn't an act of peace or friendship, nor was it a means of protecting white settlers from savage engines, because the Chippewa were actually excellent trading partners. So why is the border there? The answer is simple. The Canada-US border was established to balkanize powerful trading partners and middlemen, the indigenous peoples of Turtle Island. My argument is that many of the so-called Indian Wars began after treaties were signed and after signatories broke their promises. This has been happening repeatedly for over 200 years. The Canada-US border was actually an agreement between the United States and the British Empire. The Americans and the British had agreed to a joint occupation of Oregon Territory for 10 years, beginning in 1818. The 10-year agreement was renewed in 1827. By the 1840s, however, the partnership dissolved into questions about who actually owned the Oregon Territory. No real consideration was given to the indigenous people who lived along the proposed boundary. The border would run along the 49th parallel from Lake of the Woods in the east to the Rocky Mountains in the west. It is important to remember that this was all prior to the mass migration of European pioneers and prospectors, and it is also important to realize that the boundary established via this British-American joint venture purposefully went through the various territories of many different nations, the Chippewa being just one such nation. It is furthermore important to recognize that the British-American boundary that would eventually become the Canada-U.S. international border was established without the input of the indigenous nations that the border would affect for years to come. An early American treaty with the Chippewa refers to the newly established British and American boundary. Treaty with the Chippewa, 1819, refers to land in what is now the state of Michigan. Article 1 of this treaty outlines lands to be ceded to the United States of America, as well as lands parted out to the Chippewa for Indian reservations. Quote, Beginning at a point in the present Indian boundary line, which runs due north from the mouth of the great Oglaze River, six miles south of the place where the baseline, so-called, intersects the same, thence west sixty miles, thence in a direct line to the head of Thunder Bay River, thence down the same, following the courses thereof to the mouth, 
thence northeast to the boundary line between the United States and the British province of Upper Canada, thence with the same to the line established by the Treaty of Detroit in the year 1807, thence with the said line to the place of beginning." End quote. There's a lot of information in that paragraph. First it mentions an Indian boundary line, but it doesn't explain it. The signatories were expected to know what it was. In other words, it was something tangible, real, and already in existence. So what was the Indian boundary line? The Indian boundary line was an area of safe passage for American and European traders that had been ceded by groups of Ottawa, Chippewa, and Potawatomi peoples in 1816. So to understand the 1819 treaty, we have to look at the 1816 treaty. This will then help us to understand how the Canada-U.S. border was established in 1818. In the Treaty with the Ottawa, etc., 1816, the preamble refers to already existing troubles and treaties between the United States of America and the Sac and Fox nations. The 1816 treaty itself refers to a treaty that had been signed previously with other indigenous groups back in 1804, but I won't get into that here. The 1816 treaty with the Ottawa, Chippewa, and Potawatomi peoples states, Quote, Whereas a serious dispute has for some time past existed between the contracting parties relative to the right to a part of the lands ceded to the United States by the tribes of Sacs and Foxes, on the third day of November, 1804, and both parties being desirous of preserving a harmonious and friendly intercourse, and of establishing permanent peace and friendship, have, for the purpose of removing all difficulties, agreed to the following terms." End quote. Thus, the 1816 Treaty with the Ottawa, etc., refers to a previous treaty of permanent peace and friendship with neighboring nations. The 1816 Treaty refers to land ceded to the United States by the Sac and Fox Nations, this is important because this would be the land that the United States would then give to the Ottawa, Chippewa, and Potawatomi a few years later. Article 2 of the 1816 Treaty with the Ottawa, Chippewa, and Potawatomi states, quote, And the said United States do moreover agree to relinquish to the said tribes all the land contained in the aforesaid session of the Sacs and Foxes, which lies north of a due west line, from the southern extremity of Lake Michigan to the Mississippi River, except three leagues square at the mouth of the Wisconsin River, including both banks, and such other tracts on or near to the Wisconsin and Mississippi Rivers, as the President of the United States may think proper to reserve, provided that such other tracts shall not in the whole exceed the quantity that would be contained in five leagues square. End quote. Article 1 of the 1816 Treaty outlines the boundaries of the ceded land. One of the geographic landmarks is the southern extremity of Lake Michigan, 
This all takes place near modern-day Chicago, Illinois. Land south of a due west line beginning at the southern extremity of Lake Michigan was ceded to the United States, whereas the land north of that line was ceded to the Ottawa, Chippewa, and Potawatomi peoples. This is land that appears to have formerly been occupied by the Sac and Fox peoples. Within the land ceded to the Ottawa, Chippewa, and Potawatomi peoples, there were landmarks that were used as boundaries that now surround the metropolitan area of Chicago. The point to remember is that the Indian boundary line allowed Chicago to prosper in its own way. The modern community of Bolingbrook is a region that has developed near the old Indian boundary line. According to the Bolingbrook Historic Preservation Commission's website, the Indian boundary line was created to allow for traders to travel between Chicago and Ottawa without fear of being attacked. Quote, the Indian boundary is a 20-mile wide area, 10 miles on either side of the Des Plaines River, running south from Lake Michigan to the Kankakee River, with the northern boundary line running through northern and western Bolingbrook. This boundary was ceded to the U.S. government in 1816 by three allied Indian tribes, the Ottawa, Chippewa, and Potawatomi, to allow traders freedom to travel without fear of being attacked between Chicago and Ottawa. End quote. To me, the implied looming threat of Indian attack seems sensationalistic. But it was the years following the War of 1812 and America, as always, was in flux. Indeed, it seems to me that wars increased after the treaties were signed and people were forced to move. Incidentally, I believe the Ottawa referred to in this treaty is Ottawa, Illinois, and not Ottawa, Ontario. I argue that the treaties were not those of peacefulness and friendship, but rather underhanded maneuvers towards intentional balkanization of indigenous peoples. The Bolingbrook Commission has additional information. Quote, the first white men to explore this area were mapmaker Louis Juliet and Jesuit missionary Father Pierre Marquette, who in 1673 found the Illinois River and De Plain River route between Lake Michigan and the Mississippi, known as the Chicago Portage, of great transportation value. But it wasn't until about a century and a half later, after the War of 1812, that the U.S. government was able to sign the treaty with the three Indian tribes who surrendered the land that made up the Chicago Portage. Traders used the Chicago Portage, but the route was used more after the Erie Canal in New York was built in the early 1820s. Before the canal was dug, people used the Ohio River to get to Illinois, so much of the southern portion of the state was settled before the northern. There was more and more interest in this safe passage route after the Erie Canal was built. At about the time the canal was built, the Chicago Portage was being surveyed for the purpose of building the Illinois and Michigan Canal, which opened in 1848. So the Treaty of 1816 created a safe zone for Americans in the Chicago area. A couple of years after this treaty was signed, another treaty was entered into, the one referred to earlier that was signed in 1819 with Chippewa from Michigan which is east of Chicago. The 1819 treaty is with a different group of Chippewa than in the 1816 treaty. The 1819 treaty was signed in Saginaw, Michigan. Saginaw is almost 300 miles away from Chicago. As mentioned earlier, 
1819 treaty refers to the Indian boundary line that was part of the 1816 treaty. The 1819 treaty also refers to a boundary between the United States and the British province of Upper Canada that had been established the year before in 1818. The year 1818 was a turning point in North American history. This was the year that Britain and the United States signed the Treaty of 1818, which is more properly known as the Convention Respecting Fisheries, Boundary, and Restoration of Slaves. The Treaty of 1818 was a land trade between Britain and America for areas immediately north and south of the 49th parallel. Britain ceded to the United States areas of Rupert's Land south of the 49th parallel and east of the Continental Divide. In return, the United States ceded to Britain the northernmost tip of what was then known as Missouri Territory, land north of the 49th parallel. This trade also included portions of the Red River Colony, as well as fishing rights in Newfoundland and Labrador. Article 1 of the 1818 Treaty refers to differences arising between Britain and America regarding fishing along waterways. Land belonging to the Hudson Bay Company was exempted from American fishermen within this treaty, but the treaty allowed for American fishermen to take, dry, and cure fish within the domain of Britannia forever. However, in the same article, the treaty states, quote, but so soon as the same or any portion thereof shall be settled, it shall not be lawful for the said fishermen to dry or cure fish at such portion so settled, without previous agreement for such purpose with the inhabitants, proprietors, or possessors of the ground. End quote. In this context, I don't believe that inhabitants, proprietors, or possessors of the ground refers to the indigenous inhabitants of the land that this treaty entails. This is because the treaty directly refers to portions of land being settled. It is implied that the inhabitants, proprietors, or possessors of the ground are white settlers. The Treaty of 1818, then, is evidence for the planned cooperation of America and Britain to help each other colonize the indigenous lands of the West. Article 2 describes the boundary of the 49th parallel between, quote, the territories of His Britannic Majesty and those of the United States, end quote. The 49th parallel was chosen because it would be a straight line rather than a meandering line if waterways and landmarks were to be used. The boundary line begins at, quote, the most northwestern point of the Lake of the Woods along the 49th parallel of north latitude, End quote, and ends at the Rocky Mountains, which were called the Stony Mountains in the treaty. Article 3 of the Treaty of 1818 describes a 10-year agreement between America and Britain for free and open navigating and prospecting in areas west of the Rockies. The agreement was meant to, quote, prevent disputes and differences amongst themselves, end quote. Again, there is no mention of the indigenous inhabitants of these lands. Article 4 refers to the 10-year extension of expiring provisions from the 1815 Convention to regulate the commerce between the territories of His Britannic Majesty 
and of the United States, as well as the Declaration of His Majesty respecting the island of St. Helena. If you're interested, the island of St. Helena is in the southern Atlantic Ocean and is over 6,000 miles away from Chicago. I can only guess as to why it is mentioned in the 1818 treaty. Article 5 of the Treaty of 1818 refers to the Treaty of Ghent and the restitution of territory, property, and slaves after the end of the War of 1812. Article 5 really focuses on restitution of or compensation of slaves to the United States. Quote, Whereas differences have arisen, whether by true intent and meaning of the aforesaid article of the Treaty of Ghent, the United States are entitled to the restitution of or full compensation for all or any slaves as above described. End quote. The Treaty of Ghent, signed in December of 1814, refers to a treaty signed in 1783 between Britain and the United States. But I won't get into that treaty in this episode. What is becoming clear, however, is that the treaties of the late 1800s were built upon treaties from the early 1800s and even the late 1700s. It should be noted, then, why these early treaties, such as the Royal Proclamation of 1763, are so important even today. The Treaty of 1818 restored property and slaves to the status quo antebellum, in other words, to how things were before the War of 1812. Because the Treaty of Ghent, signed in 1814, outlined a resolution to boundary disputes between Britain and America, it was referred to in the Treaty of 1818. The Treaty of Ghent also referred to Britain and America ending hostilities with all the tribes and nations of Indians that either country was currently at war with. What is interesting in the Treaty of Ghent and the Treaty of 1818 is that these two treaties between Britain and America involve so many lives without including those people in the actual creation of the treaties. For instance, the Treaty of Ghent outlines land boundaries to be split between America and Britain, but does not mention at all that the lands were already inhabited by indigenous people. The indigenous inhabitants of the lands described in the Treaty of Ghent are not considered participants to the treaty, but nevertheless are expected to abide by it. Like the slaves, the Indians were considered as a class of humans below that of the Europeans. The slaves, however, were discussed in these treaties like objects, like possessions to be shipped back to their owners in the south. What is very interesting is that the Treaty of Ghent refers to slavery as antithetical to civilized life. The Treaty of Ghent states, quote, Whereas the traffic in slaves is irreconcilable with the principles of humanity and justice, and whereas both His Majesty and the United States are desirous of continuing their efforts to promote its entire abolition, it is hereby agreed that both the contracting parties shall use their best endeavors to accomplish so desirable an object. End quote. That's all that the Treaty of Ghent says about slavery. And yet the Treaty of 1818, legislation that seeks precedence in the Treaty of Ghent, only refers to slaves in the context of restitutions 
for property lost. In the Treaty of 1818, slaves are considered as property and possessions of America. There is nothing about freedom or justice in the Treaty of 1818, only the creation of a mutually beneficial mapping boundary for two colonial empires, Britain and America. The boundary created by this treaty would have repercussions for the next two centuries. In the late 1800s, the Sioux Chief Sitting Bull would cross the boundary known as the Medicine Line when escaping the genocidal American cavalry. It was called the Medicine Line because the Americans wouldn't cross the border into British Canadian territory. Some of the boundaries created 200 years ago still have an impact on lives today. Trade between Canada and the United States is in the billions of dollars. And it began with promises from indigenous nations to abide by the promises made in so many of those treaties entered into with various governments over the years. A just and humane society would continue to honor the treaty promises, and it would endeavor to teach history accurately. But that's just my opinion. That's all for today's episode. Stay tuned for more episodes in the future. I'm Chris Waite, and this has been the Anishinaabe History Podcast.